This is Matt. And this is Cindy. And this is Morado Lens, a feminist podcast hosted by two childhood friends who discuss embracing our inner bruja, sex, and culture. Always funny, always real. And today we have a very special guest, a Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria, are you on the line? Hi, guys. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. How do how do we start? There's so much um, political um, revo- there's a political revolution happening, and I know that's one of your taglines. So I want to talk about just that passion. You know, you talk about it's time for a political revolution. Um, as as a woman running for Congress, you want to create an America that works for all of us, not just a wealthy few. Give us a little background of Alexandria, and then what brought you here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. So I am. I'm, I'm kind of an educator at heart. I'm an organizer at heart, an activist. Um, I guess my road here was pretty long, but the long and short of it really is, is that I've always cared about my community. My family's always cared about our community. I think that that's something that's very central to Latinidad, whether it's our mom taking us to church or, um, or you know, being in, in your local families. Like when you, when our families kind of come over, it's basically like a community meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 20 of our aunts and uncles in the house. That's how and Latinos so, get down. So, <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's how we get down. And so I always grew up like every single day. I felt like my house was me in my house. It was like just a, a spot to meet up for my whole family. There's always 30 people in my house. But I always grew up um, with values of community. And this whole journey, you know, it was never in the plan for me to run for office at all. Um, Years and years ago, I worked for Ted Kennedy in his Immigration and Foreign Affairs office. I was the only Latina that, like, bilingual Latina in that whole office. And um, it was a crazy experience because it was, I was like 19, 20 years old. And we, I would get phone calls and I would have to deal with these cases that were really serious um, because I was the only person who spoke Spanish in the whole office. And mm-hmm. so when people would, would call because their husband was taken off the street by ice and like they can't find them and, and they call our office in a panic. It was me that had the responsibility of, of having to try to uh, reunify that family, cut that red tape, things like that. And, and so it really kind of opened my eyes to the importance of politics. But honestly, at the time, I never saw running for office myself as something that was in the cards for me because I always saw politics and really, I think for a long time it was, even for both parties, something that was ruled by access to wealth, by dynastic power. You had to know a lot of like very influential people. You had to have a lot of plug-ins to very wealthy people and wealthy networks. And I'm a girl from the Bronx. I didn't have any of those things. And so I never really saw running for office as something that was kind of in the cards for me. But I always did care about my community. So after I graduated college, I I moved back to the Bronx where my family's from. I'm a third generation Bronxite. I was born here. My father was born here. My mother was born in Puerto Rico. And my my grandmother on my dad's side came to the Bronx from Puerto Rico. So that is um that's always been like kind of very central to my identity. And I came back to work with kids. I figured, you know, if electoral politics is not going to make the the changes that we need to make, I'm going to try to do it myself. So I worked with with kids and early childhood uh, education. I served as an educational director with the National Hispanic Institute, 
And um, and I think the big thing of it all was was the a turning point for me was when the recession hit. And I feel like all of us had families that struggled and mm-hmm. found our strength in that time. Um, but my my father actually passed away right at the height of the financial crisis, mm-hmm. and so it was like this whole generation that was spent trying to establish ourselves here in New York was totally wiped out. And so we were back to cleaning houses and my mom was driving buses and we were on the brink of foreclosure. And um, I found myself, in addition to all the other work I was doing, waiting tables and bartending and doing everything that we could just to keep a roof over our heads. And I think it was that experience, really working 18-hour days and like really understanding and internalizing this the state of our country and the fact that like that that wasn't an exception that was the norm that's like where our country was at at that time and um and i really just felt like electoral politics was not something we could just afford to give up on anymore i feel for a long time we we're just kind of like well you know it is what it is and i think we're realizing that we just like can't allow it to be like that anymore we it's like we're in a moment right now in our country where it's all hands on deck mm-hmm. and so um in 2016 i personally was an organizer for the bernie sanders campaign in the south bronx i was out there you know knocking on doors doing doing my thing um then of course just trying to ensure that we had any democrat winning in 2016 um and uh and after the election, I found myself even more animated that we really realized that this wasn't an end. This was just the beginning. And so I I packed all my stuff into a Subaru with a friend of mine, and we drove across the country and just started talking to community organizers everywhere saying, all right, what's our next step? So that eventually led me to Flint, Michigan, and ultimately to Standing Rock. Oh, we were at Standing Rock as well. Look at that. Look at that full circle. Yeah. When were you there? I was there in December of 2016, just before, up until just before the new year. And so really oh. seeing how, I mean, it was bitter cold. It oh, was so cold. No, but, yes, no. we know. We were there the first weekend in December. That's like around that time. Oh, so we just missed each other. We, yep. must just we, we came in right when the veterans were coming in. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. That yeah. Crazy and time. I think kind of, I think like as Latinas, I don't know if you guys felt this, but there's a our our identity is 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 a political crucible so because we are indigenous mm-hmm. we are you know as we are black we are we come from the descendants of slaves especially um if you're a caribbean latina that's mm-hmm. very much a part of the picture we're also, we're we're kind of an amalgamation of all these different identities and at standing you know for me i i always knew that i was a descendant of taina indian but mm-hmm. in the caribbean you know we are genocide is a part of our history and so right. there are no no real tainos left mm-hmm. but we do carry a lot of that in our culture still to this day and so it was a very strange and unexpected feeling of homecoming in a very bizarre way when I was there. Like, I don't know if you guys had felt this, but it was kind of like feeling like I was like a cousin in a way, you know? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> like, what it felt like when I was down there. I completely, you know? completely relate. When I was down there, I had never been in a place that one, like like you said, felt so warm and welcoming, like cousins. Like, it was just like, what mm-hmm. up, fam? Like, it was just like, how are you? Come on in. And it was 
because of the way I looked. And it made me feel like, wow, there are so many other times that I haven't been in somewhere in this setting where because of the way I looked, I had to work harder to be welcomed into mm-hmm. a setting, right? So that immediately stood out to me and how many other places I just did not get that feeling. And two, the number one question I got down there was, uh, what tribe are you from? What tribe are you from? Mm-hmm. Everywhere. And, yeah. you know, like it just made me, one, feels like so welcome. Two, I was like, I should know what tribe I'm from. Like, I don't know the <laughs> lineage. So I got to work on that. And I've been working on that ever since. Like, I got like paperwork done in Peru. I'm like still waiting for that. Like, asking my family a whole bunch of questions, like really working on our family tree because um, someone that was down there like told me, they're like, you know, you should know your lineage. Like this is your land too. You're just a little further south. Like this is your country as much as it is ours. So, you know, don't forget that. And that really like impacted me and left like a real big imprint like on me as my, as a Latina, as an indigenous woman to my identity. So I completely relate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and it was it it definitely like it, it gave me chills so often um, being there. But it, it also kind of really we really saw being physically being there how corporations, especially a fossil fuel company like the Dakota Access Pipeline, mm-hmm. have essentially militarized themselves against American citizens. And like that's when we talk about money and politics being a problem. That is a huge problem. And um, and so I think that and, and actually it was it was the day that I left Standing Rock. I got a phone call from a national organization, brand new Congress that had kind of singled me out. And, and they asked me, they said, hey, you've been nominated to run. Are you are you interested in running for Congress in your home district in year 14? And that's basically how this whole train started. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was so. It was not in the plan at all, but I think looking at our district, looking at our community, looking at our history, and looking at our current representation, it was definitely a moment where it's like, you know what, I can do this, and I, I feel like I can do better. And so here we are. We launched our campaign in June of last year. Mm-hmm. We're seven, seven, eight months deep, mm-hmm. and now we're just fighting to get on the ballot. We're collecting signatures and assembling our grassroots army, and I've just been, it's been nothing but a blessing of an experience up until now. That's amazing. So for some people, for some people that can't understand exactly like what kind of support that you need for people in this area, like what, what can you tell Mm -hmm. them? Like what kind of support do you need from them? Yeah. So if you're in New York, if you're in New York, if you're a registered Democrat or if you're bilingual, mm-hmm. bonus points if you're both, mm-hmm. um, we need your help getting on the ballot. So basically, a lot of people think of New York as a very progressive state, but in many ways, it's not. And it's one of the least progressive states when it comes to voting and running for office. Um, we mm-hmm. actually had the second lowest voter turnout um, in the primary, second only to Louisiana in the entire United States of America. And it's because we have a lot of, yep. And a lot of people don't know that we have a lot of deliberate laws in place to prevent people from running for office and to prevent people from voting in primaries. And so what I need is, um, I need signatures. Uh, what we need to do essentially is to collect 10,000 signatures, um, to get on the ballot. And we need registered Democrats in the state of New York uh, to help us collect those signatures. And if you're bilingual, we also need your help as well. And so people can sign up at Ocasio2018.com slash volunteer. 
OCASIO2018.com slash volunteer. That's if you're in New York. If you're out of New York, you can also call voters. Um, and we do a lot of phone banking. So you can like sign up and just call people in the district. Hey, have you heard of Alexandria? She's running for Congress. This is the first primary election in 15 years. We've wow. got a whole generation. We've got a whole generation. Our district is 60% Latino, 70% people of color, and we've never had a person of color at all represent us in American history. That is wild. It's a trip. Yep. We're like 40% primarily Spanish-speaking. We're a very Latino district. We're one of the most diverse districts in America. There's like over 100 languages spoken here. Mm -hmm. uh, we're 50% immigrant. And we have some of the most, like, least representative um, representation uh, out of, uh, despite all of that. And so um, I'm proud to be what, you know, all records pretty much show so far. I'm the first Latina to run for the seat. I'm the first person of color to run for the seat. Um, but it's so much deeper than that. I'm, I'm a staunch progressive. I don't take a dime from lobbyists or corporate PACs. So you. I don't take any money. I don't take anything from big pharma, from the fossil fuel industry, from Wall Street equity corporations. I don't take money. I don't take any. I don't take any blood money. And that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Unlike, unlike that make Joseph money. Crowley. Is it Crowley or Crowley? Yeah. Crowley. Crowley, yeah. Crowley, who you are going yeah. up against. But he like, let's be real. He's working with a very corrupt machine. Um, and that doesn't get yeah. Wall Street and, and all these financial um kind of investors behind him and they're only there for the wealthy right for those few because it's not like that represents to your point this huge um latino latinx community that exists and has not been represented by people of their own culture um yeah so i think absolutely. that's important to just let's put out that out like joseph crowley is not the man for the people um and hopefully people understand that so that they feel more passionate about going and voting you in because that's that's really where it's at right now right now for you to be in the primaries you need to be voted in right now correct yeah absolutely and and i think the thing that's so important to communicate too is that like there's a lot of local implications to this race because he's also consolidated a lot of other positions of power so he's not just um, he's not just a congressman. He's also the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. He's a district leader. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of a local kingmaker. And just last year in, in one of our city council districts, he bumped every woman off the ballot. There wasn't a single Latina in that race wow. because, because they use, they use their legal power. They use the money that they have and things like that, um, to, to basically bump off grassroots candidates and, they don't even let them be up for a vote, which is such a shame. It's it's one thing to lose an election, but it's another thing to have an entire machine basically alter rules and abuse our court system so that people never have a voice to begin with. And that's got to stop. You know, and, it, and what I think, too, is sometimes people ask, like, why don't Latinos vote more, etc.? But I think one of the reasons is that we're just not really represented right now in government. And it's like we see we even see. We've even seen recently how easily the Democrats just gave up on the DREAM Act. You know, we had leverage. We really did have an opportunity yeah. mm -hmm. to to pass this, and they just gave up. And I just think, like, we deserve representation that fights tooth and nail for our dignity and our rights to be here just like anybody else because we have been here. Yep. That speaks a lot of representation. Like, you 
don't really realize how important it is until it's there, right? So what have you noticed? What have been some challenges for you along the way as a Latina woman running? Oh, man. I mean, there's there's a lot. I think especially as a Latina woman, there's, um, I mean, so Congress right now is 80% male. Mm-hmm. Um, and our in New York City, our local representation is overwhelmingly male. We have kind of record low amount, uh, amounts of women in city council and local elected office. And that really, really matters because those people in those seats have influence. And so when they're all men um, or when they're all like overly representative, when they're all homogenous, uh, there's kind of a confirmation bias where they want to basically help their friends. And their friends tend to be just like them. So um, they're like, I, I'm running from the Bronx. There's almost no elected women in the Bronx at all. And mm-hmm. so even within our own culture, even though we have Latinos that are that are elected in the Bronx, there's definitely a machismo culture there, too. And I like I do have to say that. And um, but there are, I've also encountered a lot of phenomenal allies and, and male allies, too. So um it's been like both sides of the coin where, okay, sure, maybe the people in positions of power do feel threatened by our challenge, but there, there are so many movements that have coalesced under our campaign. And I'm very, very proud to, to call folks like Black Lives Matter of Greater New York, endorsees, Muslims for Progress have endorsed our campaign, um, like local anti-gentrification groups have coalesced behind our campaign and we're doing the work. And so I try not to focus on the negatives um, because there's been Mm -hmm. so many positives. Good for you. And I know I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I know a lot of people will be like, you know, we get her in, we do all this work. Now we have to hope that the system doesn't corrupt her. Like what are you going to do to stay centered, Mm -hmm. to stay humble, to, you know, really just stay and focused on like your roots and why you got in the game in the first place? Yeah, well, I think that's a great, that's a, that's an amazing question. That's a question every single elected official should be asked. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple things. Um, one is that the way that I've structured this race mm-hmm. and the way that I've structured my run has, it's kind of built to to prevent that, even if I like wanted to do that. Because, because I don't take corporate PAC money, I rely on everyday people to have enough faith to chip in 10 bucks, 15 bucks, $27, you know, et cetera, um, into the campaign. And so because I rely on everyday people and I not just, I'm not just trying to win the, the faith of everyday people, but I depend on everyday people to have faith in me, um, because I don't take that lobbyist money. And so if I were to depart from that kind, from, from my values, then basically the entire lifeblood of the campaign would be gone. And mm-hmm. so even if you look at the most cynical way, which that's like the most cynical way, like even if I wanted to, um, I couldn't. But then there's also a higher purpose. And um, and there is definitely, I think, an aspect to this race that is absolutely spiritual. That's where I get the strength to keep going. And really running a campaign like mine against like against such a formidable candidate, he takes in over 3 million per cycle from wall street and pharmaceutical corporations and all the way down the list. Mm. Um, like the whole idea of just a regular girl, 
I come from a working class family. I'm not like I this is like like I don't have any any independent resources of my own. Right. So to really kind of enter this David versus Goliath type of thing, it takes faith. Like it it starts with that mustard seed of faith and um of saying, you know what, I believe I believe that this is possible. Or like our brothers and sisters at Black Lives Matter, you know, one of their big chances, I believe that we will win. And and that's the big difference where it's not in everything requires faith, but faith is the start. Faith is what allows us to first pick up that pen or to, you know, pick up the microphone in your guys' case. Faith in in the possibility, faith in the vision is what allows people to engage in the first place. Mm -hmm. But, and then reconnecting with that faith on difficult days is very, very important. So I think kind of having a spiritual practice um, is, it's important to me, you know, and I, and that is different for every single person. Where they get that energy from is different for every single person. But for me, it's very important because it's true. A lot of people do get compromised once they have access to any, any droplet of power. I sometimes laugh with my, with, with friends. Cause it's like, some people really give up for nothing. They'll give up for like a cup of coffee. <laughs> but you really need to, you really need to, to have a real connection. Like you really need to know your why. And mm-hmm. for me, that why, that why was built in, in the snowstorms of Standing Rock, that why was built in the classrooms of kids in the South Bronx. Like, that's where my why comes from. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about all these other people, but, but that's where mine comes from. And I do have to reconnect to that every day. I love that. You mentioned something super interesting before, like everyone's spiritual practice is their own and mine is different. Can you share your own and like any specifics that you do on a daily basis or a weekly basis to keep yourself like yeah. going? Yeah, definitely. Um, I and and for me, it's kind of an amalgamation because, like, I grew up in a in a household. Um, so, like, I'm Puerto Rican, which has like a very rich, um, like Caribbean Latinos have a very rich uh, spiritual history. Mm-hmm. Um, you have like the the Catholic, like um, you have the history of of. Catholicism brought in by the Spanish. You have indigenous spirituality that has always existed on the island. You have um, Yoruba practices that were brought in from the slaves that were brought to Puerto Rico. And mm-hmm. so um, even though, and you even actually have something that was known as um, crypto-Judaism, where Jews who were fleeing um, the Spanish Inquisition actually came to Puerto Rico a very, very long time ago. and. Yeah, and they practiced Catholicism in public, but they had actually private um, Jewish practices as well. And so, like, there's, there's that while many people in Puerto Rico identify as Catholic, there's actually a lot of these micro practices within that Catholicism that is more reflective of all those those other forces. So for me, I grew up. My father was uh, Catholic. My mother grew up more evangelical, Christian. Pentecostal. And so that was kind of the backdrop from which I was raised. But as I've grown up, um, I've just learned to appreciate a lot of other practices. So meditation for me is extremely important. Um, And for me, I find a really big difference when I am 
from on days that I meditate versus days that I don't meditate, settling my mind, kind of allowing my my heart to open up really and really kind of clearing my heart um, to to be receptive to whatever it is that I encounter that day to be generous with whatever it is I encounter that day. Um, reading like spiritual texts is very important to me, whether it's um, the Bhagavad Gita, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's, it is chapters from the Bible. My mother's favorite part of the Bible is the book of John because it's, you know, it's really about love. Um, and I think that there's a lot of wisdom in, in the, in a lot of our spiritual texts as well. And so kind of reading and reviewing the things that are useful to me that, and picking out what I find to to be good for me, I think, is a really important practice. Um, and then also exposing myself and being willing to learn um, from other communities as well. I think there's a real resurgence right now, um, kind of speaking about that indigeneity of Latinas and, and you guys, you know, like this whole idea of, of brujería in a way, I think, is in part... Um, us trying to connect to something deeper. Like, I think there's kind of a seed um, that's there. My, my great grandfather was actually a medicine man in Puerto Rico. And so, yeah. And he was like, I come from a real kind of Hibara family and, um, Hmm. and yeah. And so there's actually a crazy story. Um, My mother, when she was a baby, she was kind of, she was born very ill. And so the doctors sent her home to, to die. Basically she was seen as like way too ill to survive. And so my grandmother, um, took my mother and took her up a mountain to see my great grandfather and left her there with him for three months. And he did everything he could, you know, praying on her and things like that. And she survived. And so there's a, there, yeah, it's a, so there's like this really strong connection um, to that um, faith and and all those practices that are I think are important. I think it's it's culturally significant um, and how we interpret faith and how really and the best I think the highest interpretation of faith is is the active practice of love. Mm, that's really what exactly. I think. That's I a beautiful that. thing right that's, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's what it always boils down to. No matter what it looks like, et cetera. It's like how we manifest love in, right. in our actions. Right. And love is all about acceptance, right? So I love that you brought mm-hmm. in all these different um, spiritual practices that take place just in Puerto Rico alone and what that signifies to you. Um, but I also like that you dive into, it seems a little bit of everything. It's not like, oh, I'm just Catholic. Oh, I'm just evangelical. Oh, I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, part of the Yoruba tribe. You're like, I'm all of this. And um, I love that there's a story behind your mother being cured by the medicine man. Um, because to mm-hmm. me, that's probably the epitome of working with mother nature and tuning into your intuition to know what's best, right? Like what's the healing medicine? Um, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be opioids like it was, like it is now, right. Or farm or pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. which are killing our, our, um, people of color mostly, mm-hmm. um, in these inner communities. And, um, with that, I'm going to segue into what, can you just kind of tell the world, um, New York in particular in the tri-state area, um, what are some of the things that you, AK, we are fighting for together? Should you join yeah. Congress? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that what I, 
what what is a very strong animating uh, principle for me is that we we do live in the most wealthy nation in the world, and I think that we not only have a moral imperative but also a practical imperative where if we have the resources and the capacity to to educate every child in this country, to provide health care, to ensure that we have a respected and sustainable environment, then I think we are morally obligated to do those things. No child in this country should go hungry when we have the capacity to feed. No one should go without have the capacity to provide it. And I think that ultimately that's kind of the bedrock of principles. What that translates to in um, in policy is that I do advocate for improved and expanded Medicare for all. We do advocate for federal jobs guarantee. We advocate for uh, a green new deal. So mass infrastructure investment towards a hundred percent renewable energy economy. And while people may think that this is pie in the sky, it's actually not. When you crunch the numbers and you look at what we've got, it's a hundred percent doable. And in fact, Sometimes the most common rebuttal is like, how are you going to pay for this? We actually have already paid for this. And and even when our criminal justice system alone, um, one of the things that I advocate for as well, because Rikers Island is in my district, actually, um, I believe that we need to decarcerate this country. We can mm-hmm. reduce our prison population by 50% in the next 10 years. And it again, this can be done with very common sense measures, including the legalization of cannabis, um, mm-hmm. reform of parole and probationary laws, um, because we're the we're the richest nation in the world. We are, we're also a country that prides itself on principles of freedom. And so then we should we should walk the walk and we should not be the most carceral state in, in the world, in the modern world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not right. And so that those are some of the bedrock principles. Um, but the overarching, the overarching message really is that we really need to come together. And justice is not just uh, a feeling; it's not just a moral thing, but it's also a practical thing too. This is the thing; these are the investments that we need to make in order to be more productive as a society. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That's so um, important. Those are um, specifics that I think that we could all agree on and mm-hmm. we all need, especially to all the voters out there. Listen to this. This is very important um, to get someone into Congress that cares about us, that understands the culture of of diversity, because I think that it's not just culture of Puerto Ricans or Dominicans or Ecuadorians or Peruvians. Mm-hmm. This is this is a it, this is an intersectional, multicultural um, environment, and we need someone who understands the the depth of that and the breadth of that. Um, so mm-hmm. thank you so much, Alexandria, for your time today. Can you just kind of let the world know, our community, uh, where they can find you, if they have any questions, or where they can find out more about you? Yeah, totally. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's all Ocasio2018. It's all O-C-A-S-I-O 2018. Um, So you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and then get involved. Ocasio2018.com. Sign up for our email list. Um, Make some phone calls for us. You know, Mm -hmm. throw a few dollars all our way. And that's really just thousands of people doing that. It has what is really what has made this a reality. And so um, everybody has the capacity to make change, even in the smallest way. Even if the smallest way is to retweet or follow me on Twitter or, or IG or whatever it is. Um, everyone has has something, you know, and and recognizing that we all have gifts to give and 
things to receive and ways for our hearts to open and change, I think is is part of us moving forward. Eso, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 2018. Mm -hmm. If you don't know, now you know. She's the one. She's for the people. <laughs> she's not for Wall Street. And we absolutely need that throughout the United States of America right now, mm -hmm. truthfully. Um, so muchas gracias. Love your passion. Um, love your true story, your authenticity. I think that's what's going to get you through mm -hmm. the most. Um, and mm -hmm. um, again, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, 2018. And thank you. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. Let's get a Latina in there. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, gracias. Gracias a ustedes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All righty. Well, this is Nat. And this is Cindy. And this is Marado Lens. Oh,